about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. are not our thoughts, nor are your ways our ways. And Father, we, uh, we ask your forgiveness that our view of you is too little. And we ask now by your word that you would renew our hearts and our minds, that we might know your ways and your thoughts and live as your people. Pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wonder if you have recently heard Stephen Hawking's prophecy about the end of the world. Anyone? Uh, Stephen Hawking said, uh, humans have a thousand years to create a spaceship and get out of here. And after a thousand years, we're done, effectively. Uh, His dark imagining is basically that some sort of human thing will go wrong in the next thousand years, and we need to be prepared for that. Um, You know, it depends if you're a glass half full, glass half empty kind of person. You know, last 50 years we got one to the moon, so you know, a thousand years, it's kind of big. Um, but, you know, if you, you trace back, you know, if the first Aboriginal inhabitants were 40,000 years ago, then the, you know, the progress bar is at 98%, and we don't have a spaceship. So, you know, I don't know how you deal with that. Um, Stephen Hawking's idea is that basically some sort of nuclear terrorism, perhaps the rise of the Terminator, artificial intelligence, uh, climate change, or a good old-fashioned zombie apocalypse, uh, humans will wipe themselves out in the, in the next thousand years, is his thought. Um, and I don't know if you've felt in our culture recently the dark turn of imagination about the future. But I'm noticing in all kinds of ways that our vision of what is to come is of kind of a spiraling picture of violence, actually. Where the weak have no one to defend them, where humans get worse and more ferocious and ultimately destroy themselves. Uh, It is such a hopeless picture. The darkened imagination is painting for us in our culture at the moment. There is no future for us and we have no resources to overcome what's to come. I think in view of our culture's darkening imagination, Joel, despite its hecticness, let's say, gives much more hope than the imagination of our culture ever can. And actually, in Joel, there is so much to long for. The day of the Lord may appear on the surface from these words to be a dark day to be reckoned with. But really, it may be the dawning of a beautiful new day. So I want to ask some questions about the day of the Lord and how to explore this through Joel together. I want to look at three ways that we should be longing for the day of the Lord as it kind of throws up from Joel. Then I want to ask a question about what we do with that, okay? Three reasons why we should long for the day of the Lord and one uh, question to ask about that. The first thing we learn uh, and the, the reason we should long for the day of the Lord is that God is not as tame as you think. God is not as tame as you think. 
You see, Joel starts timelessly. It doesn't, you're not given a, a stage of history in which this is a part of. There's no kings, there's no markers. It's very timeless, purposefully, I think. Um, but the one thing you're given is that this occurred in a time in which Israel were basically invaded by bugs. Okay, did you catch that? It's in chapter 1. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Verse 4. But the locust swarm has left the great locusts of Eden, the great locusts have left, young locusts of Eden, the young locusts have left, other locusts of Eden. Four types of locusts, caterpillars, flying ones, non-flying ones, and cockroaches, right? Bugs. Bugs that are everywhere and invading the land, which is quite strange. Uh, and so you can understand why Joel needs to kind of get involved here. Um, and then if you jump to chapter 2, what you see is actually, it seems quite apocalyptic, but it's actually a description of what locust plagues would do have a look. Blow the trumpet in Zion, chapter 2, verse 1. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Now, do you know what locusts did when they came into a town? Sometimes they blacked out the sky. They were so thick. We have great accounts of plagues coming in and blocking out the sky. They're like something that's coming over the mountains like a great dawn. Do you know that a locust plague actually can sound like a fire? And actually, when you look at land that locusts have gone through, it looks like a fire has been through. And so Joel says, um, before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They look like little horses, verse 4. And they gallop, and they're kind of this impenetrable army that you can't shake. You know, machine guns and bazookas don't help against locusts, right? They kind of just keep flying at you. And the picture here is of this overwhelming army. They charge like warriors, verse 7. They scale like soldiers. They march in line. You can't swerve them. You can't jostle them. They break your ranks. This massive army, Joel says, has come out against you. But he says, the thing that you guys have forgotten, the things you don't see, is that it's not just bugs. Before them, the earth shakes, the sun and moon are darkened, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. Joel says, you guys got to wake up. Your God has made war on you. You know, the locust plagues of Egypt were for God's enemies, for those who stirred up his displeasure. And you've got to wake up, verse 5, wake up, you drunkards, and weep because God is making war against his people because he's not as tame as you think. And you better wake up, Joel says, to what is happening. Now, what happens as you walk through the book of Joel is this picture of locusts and this flame and the darkening of the sky is kind of taken up like a beautiful motif. And then it's used to picture a bigger day, another day of the Lord that is going to come. It's not really about bugs that day of the Lord, but you see it in, in chapter 3. And God says, in those days and at that time, I'll gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I'll enter into judgment against them. In verse 9, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. You see, the day of the Lord is the day when God confronts humanity for what they have done. It is the day when the God who is not as tame as you think is able to deal with the stuff 
that you are not able to deal with, that we are not able to deal with as humanity. You see, the fact that God is not as tame as you think, as we see a picture here of him making war on his own people, is a good thing. Because help has to come from outside for us and for our world. And so God gathers the nations to judge them. And Joel says, who can endure that? It is dreadful. Friends, I don't know what picture of God you walked in today with. Sometimes the view of our God in our culture is this kind of wafting benevolence and goodness, which does some justice to the goodness of God. But really there's no view, no room for a God like this. And this is a God of better news. A God who can actually confront the evil and darkness of the world in a way wafting benevolence never can. Your God is not as tame as you think is the first reason to long for his coming. But the second is this. His justice is perfect. His justice is perfect. Now, you might be reading Joel and thinking, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. I'm not sure if I'm comfortable with a God like this who summons the nations to judge them all around like we see here. And I think there's a, there's, there's, there's a reason in our cultural imagination for that. Having uh, conversations with people in this suburb when I talk to them about morality, they give me the same line, actually. How do you decide what, uh, what's right and wrong? And they tell me this. Uh, do what you like unless it affects others significantly. Do what you like unless it uh, affects others significantly. Now, I quite like that because you curb your own excess if it hurts someone else, and that's got a beautiful heart to it, and it values human freedom. But there's a clear priority there, isn't there? It's that... My freedom trumps unless I trump someone else's freedom. The value is my ability to do what I like. And that really runs countercultural to the God we see here who calls everyone to accountability and consequence for the decisions they make with the life that God has given to them. God doesn't put freedom as the highest. Our God loves justice. He loves accountability for wrongs done. His values, his ways are not our ways. Now, just to dig this in a little bit further, there's one crime in Joel that's really mentioned. One crime. It's not Israel's crime. We don't know what they did. But there's a nation's crime that the day of the Lord is coming for. And it's in chapter 3, verse 3. I think this beds down what God's about here. God says this about the nation's. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. And again in verse 6, you sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. The thing that God is confronting humanity with is the selling into slavery of his people. In the ancient world, you would sell slaves from one side of the Mediterranean to the other side, to Greece. Same as the other side of the Atlantic in the 19th century. Even God's people in Amos chapter 2 are, are guilty of this being part of this slave trade. And it even appears here that the reason that they were sold into slavery was this vindictiveness. God says in uh, 3 verse 4, what, what do you have against me? Are you paying me back? Are you repaying me? And in verse 6, there's this hint of 
of them wanting to send Israel far from their homeland. There's this vindictiveness to these nations. They're, they want to sell God's people to settle a score into slavery, to sell them like cattle and property and treat them shamefully so they might have prostitutes and another, another glass of wine. And what God says is, I know what you did. I know what you did. And I remember, and my justice is perfect. And there is a day coming when I will confront you for it. When I'll gather you all around in the valley of decision in verse 14 of chapter 3. And I'll make my judgments on what happened. Now we need perfect justice like that. Because in this world, as we look at things, we we struggle to tell the difference between a perpetrator and a victim. Such are the cycles and the generations of pain and violence in our world. We can't make sense of who did what. We don't know where innocent blood is. And we don't know where real evil lies. But God here remembers. And he knows. And he traces the generations back. And he says, I know what you did. You know, Joel actually ends on this question. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 21 is retranslated in the new NIV and a bit differently in the ESV. And it says, shall I leave innocent blood unavenged? I will not. That is a God of perfect justice. And that's another reason to long for his coming. For there is no other way for that to happen. Now before we move on to our third one, can we just pause on slavery for a second? Um, Did you know that... um, there are still 46 million slaves in the world. A third of them are in India. Uh, There's a whole stack in Southeast Asia. There are apparently 4,500 in Australia still. Uh, This happens when someone who's poor asks for a loan from someone wealthy in the town who then charges such large interest on them that they end up working uh, manual labor on their property. It happens when a young girl is promised a husband in one land and instead put into a prostitution ring when they get there. Uh, We have a real world like this still. And it's something that our God hates. I I don't know what you want to do about that. Um, You can go look up International Justice Mission and have a look. They actually send people to go literally to people's houses and free slaves. There's great stories, International Justice Mission. You can go support them. Go support the Freedom Hub in Alexandria, thinking about trafficking in our own country. Or perhaps in this country, uh, in this season of Christmas, apparently the, the second largest thing we buy for Christmas is clothes. And if you go to worldbaptistaid.org.au, you can have uh, a look at all the brands in Australia and work out which ones you can know for sure don't have manual labor, forced manual labor as part of their production chain. So you could actually make sure that your dollars this Christmas go away from any part of slavery in the world. How about that? Our God stands against it, and so I think we should as well. So our God is not tame, and he has perfect justice. But the third thing that we see here is that really he's on about beginnings and not endings. It's on about beginnings and not endings. There's two things that are poured out on the day of the Lord. Two things. The first is in chapter 2 where there's this picture of of God pouring out his spirit on his people. And and there's no distinction. Sons and daughters, young and old, men and women, it doesn't matter who you are, you get this waterfall of of, of God himself 
And in the Old Testament, you'd have to have a special license to have the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you knew that. You kind of had to be a king or something, and you kind of had to show your license, and you get a little bit of spirit, and you get to do some things. But in, 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 when the day of the Lord comes, God just like, well, just have me, right? Just, you know, you can all see the visions now. You can all know the things of God now. You can all personally be involved with me, experientially, phenomenologically, a deeply drinking of who I am. And the reason why that's an unimaginable blessing is that we were made for that. We were made to know our God. Part of the brokenness of our world is our inability to see him and experience him clearly. And really our restless hearts are longing for a vision of him that's clear and true and deep and can sate our hearts. And the day of the Lord is that new beginning when he pours out his spirit without measure, unendingly giving us himself. But the second thing he pours out, this is actually a thing through Joel, which kind of weirds me out, um, is wine. There's heaps of wine in Joel, if you read it end to end. And at the end of Joel, after the day of the Lord comes, after justice is done on perpetrators uh, for, on the sake of victims, in that day, the mountains will drip with new wine. You know, Mountains of wine. And and the hills will flow with milk and the ravines of Judah will run with water. The wine in Joel is a symbol of flourishing, of things working, of brokenness being dispelled, of God's people being safe, of joy and celebration, of a new start in a new Jerusalem where things actually work and God is actually present, where trees start to grow again and when there is no more famine and no more locusts and bugs. You see, God is not just about endings, he's about beginnings. And the day of the Lord is a beginning for the people of God. A new day where the spirit and the wine starts to flow. And so we see this picture of this God who isn't tame, whose justice is perfect, and who is all about beginnings. But I think the problem when we read a book like Joel is we don't really know what to do with that. It's, it's quite up there in the sky, this coming day and this God who is mighty and up there. But we're not really sure how to handle our response to that. What it actually calls us to in this life, in this world. And luckily, Joel helps us with that. Because he calls the people of God really clearly to action. And he calls them to admit their spiritual poverty and to cling on to his mercy. In chapter 2, he says, 2.12, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he's he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. This is a beautiful picture of what repentance actually is. Sometimes we think, uh, well, I guess I should feel bad about the stuff I did wrong. Like, I should, how can I make myself feel worse? That's kind of in our head about repentance. But what Joel says repentance for the people of God is, is a deep admission of just spiritual poverty. It's not about a deeper examination of and feeling worse about yourself, but an admission that actually, you know what, what's in here is worth mourning. What's here is worth weeping about. It's a recognition that 
in us is the same violence of our world. And there is no health in us. And then to stop thinking about us. Because it's not about us. Repentance isn't about us. Repentance is about God and focusing away from ourselves and onto Him. And that's what Joel, Joel calls them to. He says, admit your poverty by rending your heart and turn and take hold of the graciousness and the compassion of God. Because it's not about you, it's about Him. You don't have to keep looking at your brokenness and your sin. You've got to start looking at His graciousness and His mercy and His ability to turn from His wrath, which is exactly what He does in Joel. He kills all the locusts. Apparently that smells really bad when that happens, by the way. It smells really bad when all these bugs die. Side note. Um, but He actually turns in compassion on His people. And how more so for us? You know, Jesus was the one who started the wine flowing at a wedding in Cana, at the beginning of his career. At the end of the career, he poured out the Holy Spirit because in him, the day of the Lord has come. And the clouds haven't darkened on us, but they did darken on him on the cross. And God didn't confront us with our sin, but he confronted Jesus with our sin and made war not on us, but upon himself in his son on the cross, pouring out his wrath so that our justice is done and that all that remains for us is mercy and compassion and grace and that new beginning. We have the confidence to know that when we turn to him and away from ourselves and admit our spiritual poverty, that all that is left for us is grace and that all our justice is done. I don't know about you, but the, the longer I walk in the Christian life, the harder it is to admit my spiritual poverty because I have more ticks on the wall, have more stuff going on. But in the end, the Christian life is this continual admit, admission of spiritual poverty, not to focus in on feeling bad about ourselves, but to focus on the greatness of our God, His grace and compassion. So as we conclude, what are you going to do with this picture of your God? Is your God too tame? Is your God more about freedom than justice? Is your God compassionate? Is your God about beginnings? As I look at this, what I feel most convicted about is how I think the day of the Lord is some abstract thing in the sky, but actually there's a God uh, who loves us, who sees things in our world that he hates, and one day he will come in justice against them. And I realize that to stand with him and to love him is to stand in this world for the things that he hates in the name of his justice. Aristotle said that it is by doing just acts that a just man is produced. Not by just thinking just things. He said that philosophers who think a lot about justice but don't do anything are like someone who goes to the doctor, asks for some advice, and then walks out the door and does nothing. But I think the God of Joel, who both shows us justice by judging us in his son and opens his hands of mercy, rips open our hearts to stand in this world for his justice and in that name of that same compassion on behalf of people 
who are longing for God to come. I think where this strikes for me is not just to love the justice of God, but to act it out and become that lover of justice that he is. How will it be in the next three weeks as you walk to Christmas that you will enact justice in light of the day of the Lord to come? Let's pray. Our Father, you know our hearts and you know that our vision of you is too small. That we, that we value our freedom more than we love the justice that you love. That really, uh, we, we, we don't know our spiritual poverty. We trust our own pride. And so, Father, here we are rending our hearts. Turning back to you knowing that because of Jesus there is only grace only mercy and asking you to awaken in us a longing for the day of the Lord and a love of your justice and we pray that not in our power but in the power of your son who is spiritually rich we will begin to enact justice in your name bringing glory to you in Jesus name listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.